Well, hi everyone, and hi, Dr. Nashim. I am Elizabeth Centeno, a graduate student here at DNS, and together with Niti, a recently master's student, uh, we will ask a few more questions and take this conversation uh, forward. And I will say it's, it's great to have you here and hear all of this. I feel like we're getting a bit of an insight into our history and how we became to be as a group. And in, during your conversation, you were talking about all your international work. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how do you go about determining or choosing a field site? Like what are the determinants of choosing a field site where you will be conducting your research? Well, uh, one of the things about doing international work is you don't do this by yourself. You have to have partners. It's practically necessary because you have to have access to populations and areas. And it's morally necessary. You have to, you can't just go and use people. You have to partner with people to uh, help them with the issues that they're concerned with. And so you really need to build a partnership to do good international work. And uh, I, think, I think that's, that's very critical. Uh, I remember when you were over in the WHO actually too, <laughs> at a meeting I was at one time about worms. Yeah, it was, we, I was very lucky. We got to interact before coming to Cornell. And that was a great experience. It was actually on, on uh, parasitic uh, diseases. And a little bit building on what you were saying, uh, how do you go about or in your experience in terms of uh, building these partnerships and, and keeping them? Well, you know, there's an awful lot of this is, uh, is based on personal interaction, of course. I mean, you have to know people. They have to know you. They have to trust you. You have to trust them. You have to bring some resources to the table so that uh, you're not just sponging on people. Uh, uh, so it's a matter of building uh, mutual trust and understanding what the issues that they're concerned with and interested in, what kind of help you can give them, and how can you benefit the where you are in getting and just get, instead of just getting data, but uh, are out there trying to be a part of a project that's of interest to your partner so and so you have to kind of do that sort of thing and and it's it's i don't know it's not exactly easy to do that sort of thing you you, you need to get yourself out there internationally go to international meetings get to know people one of the things about being a cornell international student nutrition student is you have a big cadre of people out in the world who have been here and have worked with you who could work with you and represent entrees to a potential research programs and collaborations. I mean, there's a, that one time when people used to go to WHO meetings or World Bank meetings, they would talk about the Cornell Mafia because there were so many people who had done their PhDs or master's degrees at Cornell that were involved in these programs. But it's important to convince people that what you're trying to do is important not only to yourself, but to them. And international work particularly has to be a collaborative effort. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think that's, that's what we're always aiming for. As not only as international, as people in the part of the international group in PIN here, but also as international students. One thing I would like, I'm curious about is, what is your favorite part about working and, and visiting these international sites? Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> you, you know, I grew up as a farm boy from Illinois, and uh, so it opened my eyes to the world <laughs> when I got out and did work internationally. I mean, 
that trip to Burma, for example, was incredible for me. And, uh, and we did a lot of work in Panama, but we particularly did a lot of work in Indonesia. They get to, to understand cultures. I mean, I got to meet three Indonesian presidents in the process of doing this because uh, Indonesia would have a, we had people like Sukirman who was Mr. Nutrition of Indonesia. And then his successor was Fasli Jalal, who was my student, who became very important in nutrition. He's now rector of a medical school in Jakarta. So the, the business of um, getting together with uh, people like this and understanding the cultures and so forth was a, was a really important part of doing international work. I mean, you just can't kind of say, I'm going to use this site. I'm going to participate with this site. So what you have to look at it. Thank you so much for sharing all this, Dr. Nishaim. And we were just wondering if uh, you have any fun or scary anecdotes from your field visit for international nutrition. Well, fun visits. I mean, I had fun everywhere I went. Uh, when, when we were in, when David Crompton and I were in Burma together, we sat on uh, one of our colleagues' houses, torches, and uh, we smoked cheroots and. Uh, <laughs> and absorb some of the local culture. And uh, we enjoyed our, particularly I enjoyed our connections with Indonesia where we had many good friends and, uh, and a lot of opportunity to do work there. And uh, I don't know, it's just, I think international work uh, is, a, is something that uh, gives you a different idea about the world. You know that where you're living at that spot is not the only way the world works. And uh, I think it's a very important as a growth of a person as individual to kind of understand that. Thank you. And kind of moving on from that question, we were wondering if you also had some challenges that you faced while conducting these international field works and how did you overcome these challenges? Ah, uh, yes. Well, there are, uh, always a lot of challenges. I mean, you have to be sure what is it you're wanting to do. First, you have to define your issues. And then you have to find, well, what is the best place to try to understand those issues? And then you have to find somebody who can help you get access to the <clears throat> populations and to the areas that you want to work in. So, you know, there are many challenges to setting up an international program. Now, I know uh, people like Sarab have developed sites and areas in which they're very much involved uh, internationally, which helps a lot for students to be able to fit into those kind of programs. And I think it's important that faculty who are doing international work develop those connections and uh, sites so that their students can have the benefit of working in those areas. And I think it's very hard to just kind of say, I'm going to go to work in this country and, and go there and say, okay, now I want to do something. So I think it's important that the faculty develop these relationships and they help their students find the right connections to do that. I think that's very important. That sounds like we really should be taking notes. And in that spirit, I, I wanted to ask you a few more questions about, I think will be valuable for, for all the trainees and, and our podcast listeners. So we were wondering if you if you could share some valuable lessons that you got through your educational and professional training. We, we heard you talking about having your initial experiences in the lab, working with animals and lab bench research, and then moving on to population, to human studies, uh, and also international settings. So 
for us, for the for the new generations, uh, what would you say are the most uh, valuable lessons you learn? Well, oh my goodness, uh, that's a big question. <laughs> One of the things uh, I, I found the work in the laboratory initially was very helpful, working with experimental animals under very controlled conditions gave you experience with ways in which you could control the experimental situation and, and design experiments that were very specific in terms of doing these things. And so uh, what, one of the things I did with my own students was I uh, often had them do an animal experiment on the subject that we were interested in before they went into the international sphere to do human studies. So we did pig studies on Ascaris before they went to do human studies. And we, we, we did studies on, uh, for example, on malaria and uh, iron deficiency. And we did this with, uh, with uh, animals. It turns out that uh, if you infect mice with a strain of malaria, but put them on a low iron diet, the malaria won't affect them. But if you give them lots of, lots of iron, the animals will all die. So there are things you can do at the laboratory that I think are important not to discard when you want to do human studies. So I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure I've answered your question, but uh, it's, a, it's an issue that uh, I, I kind of like the idea that I've had an opportunity to do both, to do both the human studies and to do the laboratory studies. Oh, that's great. That actually answers also my next questions, which was about uh, integrating your experience uh, in the lab with, with your work with human studies and populations. Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's very important. Uh, you could do very controlled experiments with uh, animals, which you can't do with people in populations. You can't put people in cages and feed them in certain ways. So you have to. But on the other hand, you can develop some principles that you want to look for by doing very controlled experiments with animal experiments. I mean, we, we did that with the pigs to begin with. We did that with mice. We've done it with rats. I even worked it with chickens. So I'm kind of grew up in the days when uh, nutrition was heavily involved in, uh, in animal studies uh, before they got into heavily into human populations. I mean, one of the things that happened when I came to the division in 1974, one of the things we did early on was the area in Martha Van, which is now the cafeteria, we had a big animal facility down there. We built a new animal facility because we had so many faculty who were working on experimental animals. So you ever go to the cafeteria down there you can remember you're sitting in the rat room or something like that <laughs> thank you see this this is great now next time that we'll go through campus we're going to be thinking about this <laughs> <laughs> and then a little bit taken into you really have an impressive career and every little bit of conversation we get to hear some other anecdotes and so i wonder what what has been your, your biggest motivator to, to continue working in this field of international nutrition? Well, I don't know. I think that uh, you see populations around the world. You see issues that uh, affect these populations and they affect individual human beings, not just populations, but you look at individuals and see what happens. You can do something that improves their lives or improves the knowledge that can be helpful, I think, is a very satisfactory thing. <clears throat> One of the things that I, I got a lot of satisfaction from, and David Crompton and I both, was when we had this last international meeting in Bali. The Congress, the conference that we had, which was sponsored with WHO, passed a resolution 
which they called the Bali Declaration. And it said that, I've got a copy of it here. It says that benefits accrue from deworming in child growth, development, and cognition, and adult productivity, and in the course and outcome of pregnancy. And the Bali Conference declares that the World Health Organization, as a matter of urgency, should call on governments of the development countries to contribute to relieving poor people worldwide of these unnecessary burdens of disease. That was the Bali Declaration. Well, in 2001, and you know this because you were at WHO, I think, at the time, or not at then, but in the same area, the World Health Assembly adopted a resolution calling on member states to take steps to reduce the burden of parasitic infections. So the Bali Declaration kind of got into action at WHO about six months later. And so we were very pleased with that. It was a very satisfying thing to do, to feel that we made some help with all the colleagues that worked with us on these conferences to bring attention to the need for a particular thing that could be done relatively easily in providing antihelminthic drugs in the right place at the right time. So I think that's one of the things that you should get as you work internationally. There are things that you can do that can help people internationally, and it gives you a great deal of satisfaction. Thank you so much for sharing all this, Dr. Nishayam. And I do agree, it does give you a great deal of satisfaction when you do something so impactful in uh, the field of public health. And now, going back to your days as a trainee or a graduate student, is there any piece of advice that you received during that time which you really held on to? And is, is there any piece of advice that you have for the current graduate students or trainees in uh, international nutrition and public health? Well, I mean, advice is cheap, so uh, probably not going to be something that could apply to everybody. But uh, I think you should try to get yourself broadly educated. In other words, uh, get yourself a variety of skills. Uh, certainly do the uh, kind of epidemiological uh, population-based skills that you need to do, but also get to know uh, the science behind what you're trying to do as well as you possibly can. And also, I think, be open to working with collaborators. I found that my work was kind of amazing that I worked with David Crompton and that the two of us with such different backgrounds happened to come together by accident uh, in a way that made us contribute to each of us to the kind of things we were interested in. And I think you should be open to working with partnerships and, and others offering your expertise, but at the same time, being able to accept the advice and expertise of others. I think that's important. And, and then if you have a particular interest, you know, make sure you get yourself the skills. You can get yourself the skills while you're here at Cornell in a concentrated way that enables you to do the work that you really want to do. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to give anybody advice. I mean, people need to find out these things on their own, but. Uh... <laughs> well, thank you so much. And we still value all of this. And before I hand it over to Dr. Mehta again to wrap the conversation up, I just have two more questions, which we ask all our podcast guests. And that is, what was your least favorite part about being a student and what was your Favorite part about being a student in nutrition? <laughs> well, what was my least favorite part? Let me think. Let me have to think about that a little bit. I guess uh, I really can't think that I was all that unhappy being a student. I really kind of enjoyed being a student. It was uh, it was fun to get to learn uh, new things. It was I enjoyed the, the camaraderie with students. I learned as much from the students. I mean, that's one of the th great things about the International Nutrition Program here, 
is the students coming from so many different places and you get to know the world and uh, you get to know not only your own way of thinking, but other ways of thinking. And so I think that atmosphere is extraordinarily important to producing a really good international nutrition student. So I, that was one of the things I really enjoyed. I, I, I grew up as I was a graduate student without that kind of diversity in terms of people that were around me, because I was at a place where there were basically, most of them were from the US. So we had a few students from the Philippines, but largely what I found when I was in the division and involved with the international program was the wonderful way in which students could interact and to learn about each other and learn from each other about their cultures and about problems that were needed to be dealt with and so forth. So I guess I, I can't tell you what I hate. I love my graduate study, so I can't say I, what I didn't like about it so much, but I can tell you what I liked about it, which is the interaction with other people. Thank you so much, Mel. This was fascinating. We can go on and on and uh, hear more stories, and we would love to. This is a great way of getting our conversations kind of series started. And um, before I close this out, do you have any parting thoughts for us? Anything else you want to add? Well, keep up the good work. It's hard for me to believe, but, you know, I was here when uh, Henri Van Veen came to Cornell 60 years ago. I was on the faculty at that time. So 60 years has gone by of the international program. I think it's an important program for Cornell, for individuals involved. So uh, keep up the good work and uh, support your colleagues and friends and uh, continue to make us proud. That's all the closing advice I can give you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mel. We really, really appreciate it. This was lovely. And uh, thank you to everyone in the audience. Uh, please stay tuned for more insightful conversations with living legends like Mel. On uh, September 22nd, we'll, we'll be hosting Professor Jerry Haas in a similar conversation. And follow us on our podcast at pin.transistor.fm. All these episodes will be available there soon. Thank you so much.